You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. So let's turn to this amazing story together for a few minutes today in Joshua chapter 10. I uh, hope you got that in front of you, boys and girls. Make sure you're looking on somewhere and let's follow together what God is teaching us as he speaks to us today. Joshua chapter 10. As I said, you remember that last week we left the camp of Joshua and the Israelites having made this binding agreement with their next door neighbors, the Gibeonites. Remember how the Gibeonites had deceived them through trickery, dressing up in those old clothes, carrying those sacks and the moldy bread, making the Israelites believe that they were very poor and from far away, when in fact they were very rich and from just up the road. The upshot of this agreement was that they would receive protection from Israel in return for service, especially in forestry and the water supply. But as you can imagine, in the days even long before BBC News 24 or live notifications on your apps, the other tribes in Canaan got to hear about this stunt the Gibeonites had pulled off and King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem became really twitchy. Jerusalem was just about six miles from Gibeon and he was getting really nervous. Verse 1 tells us this. He heard what Joshua and the Israelites had done to the cities of Ai, Jericho, and their kings, and since Gibeon had made the peace pact with Israel. He became, secondly, look at verse 2, alarmed because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities, larger than Ai, and its men had good fighters. So you see, in military and in economic terms, in money terms and in army terms, because Jericho was to the east and it had fallen, and Ai was in the central belt, and it was up in smoke. And Gibeon had capitulated and become an ally of the Israelites in the west. It meant that they were now completely cornered. There was nowhere for the king of Jerusalem to go. Israel now held the major land trade routes, and Adonai Zedek faced Jerusalem's own version of Canexit, or something like that, whatever the ancient equivalent of Brexit might have been cut off by this newly formed land border with these Israelites outsiders just camping not far away. And so he acted very quickly, deciding the best form of defense was attack. Look at verses 3 and 4. He speaks to four other local kings from Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, and he asks them for some army or military support. All these local tribes with these wonderfully named kings who sound like great pantomime villains held some kind of very loose alliance. Things weren't always harmonious in Canaan, their home, but, but they often built up relationships and supported one another and attacked common enemies. Sometimes they went to war with each other, but in this case, they went to war against Gibeon because they saw that Gibeon had committed treason, that they were going against the rest of the Canaanite or Amorite. Every time we word Amorite or Canaanite, it means the same thing here. So the Gibeonites had sold themselves to Israel and they were traitors to the rest of the Canaanites. So rather than confronting Israel, King Adonai Zedek raises a huge army and wants to smash the Canaanite collaborators. These five kings, look at verse 5, they attack Gibeon as a warning sign to others. Make sure this is like a warning signal to the rest of Canaan. We don't want any other tribes to buddy up with Israel. If you do, you too will be attacked. This was a warning sign. Let's deal with the Gibeonites. They're traitors. Let's deal with them once and for all. Just on a bit of a side note, you can 
play about with this in your mind later on. Isn't it interesting when you stop and put it like this? At this moment in history, the king of Jerusalem attacked the friends of Israel. Get that? The king of Israel, king of Jerusalem rather, attacks the friends of Israel. Because at this moment, you see, Jerusalem was enemy territory. It it didn't belong to Israel. Not yet. But then we move very rapidly from one leader to another as we are reintroduced to Joshua. Look at verse 6. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, do not abandon your servants. Come up quickly and save us. Help us because the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. What's Joshua to do? Here's the Gibeonites, the people who tricked them in the last chapter, now asking for help. Joshua responds graciously. Look at verses 7 to 9. Have it open in front of you. Now remember, the Gibeonites had taken Israel for fools. Through their clever deception, had managed to enter into a legally binding deal with the Israelites. Israel could have turned around to Gibeon and says, ha, serves you right for making mugs of us. We're just going to let you perish. We're going to let you suffer. And you know what? That'll be the end of a very difficult or embarrassing chapter in our history. If, if you got wiped out, actually, it, it wouldn't really bother us too much because you deceived us. You'd made fun of us. You made fools of us. But that is not Joshua's way. He's a man of his word. And even though he had entered into an agreement with Gibeon, even under false pretenses, he was not going to back out on it. Their new local partners, Gibeon, are besieged with these armies, and they, re- they appeal to Joshua, and he responds graciously with help. Joshua raises an army to go into battle to save the Gibeonites. His word of protection in Joshua 9 is not neglected in Joshua 10. And here we can't help but notice that Joshua, and I want you to notice this first of all today, Joshua is becoming more and more like his master. The Lord. His word is his bond. Just a quick moment of self-reflection for all of us today. True believers are those whose word matches their walk, whose saying matches their doing, whose Christian lives, who, who set differences aside in order to reach out in response to the cries for help from those who are vulnerable. What Joshua said he would do, he fulfills. Joshua could have watched them wiped out from a distance, but instead he goes into battle on their behalf. And as I said, Joshua is looking more and more like a savior, getting to work on behalf of those who treated him badly. In word, and work, in life and lip. Are you more like your savior today than you were last week or the week before? But also we see that Joshua is committed entirely, verses 7 to 9. Look at what he does. Quite remarkable. He, he hears the cry of the Gibeonites and immediately, verse 7, marches up from Gilgal with his entire army. You might have thought Joshua could have just brought a few hundred men. He brings his entire army. Look at verse 9. It was an all-night march. The one thing that it doesn't tell us here, but if you were to get your map out or your atlas at home out, It's 15 miles uphill overnight. This was no easy walk. 15 miles at night uphill the whole way. There's nothing half-hearted about Joshua's commitment to Gibeon. They're now partners with him. They stand together. And so Joshua leads his best fighting men into battle. Did you hear those words? 
entire army, best fighting men, marching all night. I think it's wonderful. Don't you marvel at Joshua's utter devotion? He holds nothing back. Nothing back. Unwavering commitment. Why? Because you see, Joshua knows it's God's cause he's about. It's Yahweh's fight he's involved in. This is the Lord's legacy at stake in his promised land. Israel is to take Canaan. Israel is to rule the land. Israel is to defeat the evil kings of the Amorites that make the Lord spiritually sick. Joshua is fully engaged in service for his Savior. Joshua is all about God's kingdom business, and he holds nothing back. Best men, all night, entire army, nothing held back. And as he does that, I think it's amazing that in verse 8, we get the reassurance of God's presence. Look at verse 8. The Lord reappears to Joshua in verse 8. Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. You see, and we need to get this today in Union Road. There's to be no holding back in the service of the Savior. Half-heartedness has no place amongst the people of God. Laziness is in fact a marker that you do not belong to the Lord. You're either in or out. You're either marching with Him or you're staying at home comfortably without Him. And sadly, so many of us treat God like a great grandfather figure. We have to keep Him happy by turning up to see Him every so often at church. Or we offer Him some very small, insignificant corners of our lives. Or we squeeze God in to accommodate how we feel or where our family or our situation instead of letting His huge warrior-like rule take over every corner of our lives. Some of us serve Him with a smirk, without much due care and diligence. Lastminute.com, ah, oh, just throw that out and that'll be okay if it's church-related. Instead of giving our all, throwing it 100%, every last effort into the service of our Savior. And some of us in Union Road today don't even serve Him at all. We become greedy consumers, want to always just to get stuff. We even turn up to church wanting to get stuff from Him rather than give our lives in worship to Him. But there are some tremendously reassuring words in that verse 8 that those who look to the Lord and seeking to live with Him and for Him. We don't learn anything new about God here. God has been saying all along to Joshua. In fact, He's been saying all along since Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, the same thing. It's God on repeat to His people. He said it to Moses, to Joshua. He will say it to David, to Daniel, to Peter, to James, to Paul and John. He'll say it to Mary from Money Moore or Doreen from Desert Martin. He'll say it to Tom from Tobermore and Margaret from Macrofell. The Lord is saying, when you are about my business, when you are giving your all for me, and the battle is all around you, and things seem very uncertain, and it would be much easier to bottle it and back out and say, no, that's too much. I'm not giving that. I'm not handing that over to the Lord. The Lord says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Isn't that exactly what we need? God's people don't need new truth or fresh revelation. 
We don't need images or visions from God, but rather we need to get our heads into our Bibles and see those glorious truths and promises already given and repeated. That's how God reassures his children. You see, the Word of God, repeated, takes on particular power when it's applied to all our particular problems. We need to hear, keep coming back to hearing the words of our Lord when he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says it to Joshua all the way through this book, don't be afraid as you battle the Amorites. He says it to the weeping prophet Jeremiah, who's under pressure from persecution in Jeremiah 1 verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. What about those drowsy shepherds who lay around in the Bethlehem hillside one ordinary night, going about their ordinary work, suddenly confronted with the reality of heaven and all its beauty as eternity breaks in, and they think they're done for as they see that first angel and then those many angels. But the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news, great joy for all people. Or as Jesus looks out at the crowd, a crowd not dissimilar to folks sitting in Union Road today with all their own different particular burdens and needs, worries for family, worries for their children, concerns for their own health, concerns for their community, looking all around them. And what does he say in Matthew 10 verse 31? Don't be afraid. You're worth more than the sparrows. Don't be afraid. Or as these things close in around you, suffocating you with a sense of fear or foreboding, as he thought about in Thursday night past at pause for prayer, whenever John felt cut off and alone, Revelation 1 verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Friends, if you're living for the Savior, you're living for the one who's the first and the last, the beginning and the end the Alpha and Omega, the Eternal One. He's the only one worth living for. Friends, we don't need new visions of Jesus, but we need God by His Spirit to apply these ancient words as ever true to our faltering hearts. And you see, when we do that, that energizes us and it makes us responsive. God's comfort doesn't make us curl up in a cozy ball and hug him like a teddy bear. No, God's truth fills us afresh and enables us to go on. We will always see this true impact of God's word in people's lives because this word does not stifle us. This word, when it comes to us, stimulates us. Listen to the words of Daniel 11, verse 32. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. You know, if you really know God, you'll be doing for him all the time. You'll be living for him constantly. The people who really know their God take action for him. Another translation, which actually is better and closer to the Hebrew, says this, the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. Valiantly. Even when everything's against us, we act valiantly. That means God's people, empowered by all they know about them, will be enabled to face danger and doubt and disappointment and opposition and dissatisfaction and diagnosis and even death itself. We can act valiantly, even in the face of death, because he is the do not fear God. He is the I am with you God. And we need to hear that every single day of our Christian lives. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not fear. I am your God. Do not fear. I am with you always. And in Joshua's life, this was then demonstrated as he prayed passionately. 
Look at verses 12 and 13. Let's read them together so we keep back on track. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. That's some prayer, isn't it? Recognizing this opportunity to end the conflict with not just one king, but he can take out five in one go. Joshua prays a big, bold prayer to God. What he is asking in response to that to see what is good at doing. He does it openly. He does it publicly in the face of all of Israel. Whatever happens, Joshua wants God to get the glory and the Israelites to go home that day and say, God did that. That was all of him. And what a bold prayer. Now, you know, you could argue all day and night, quite literally, about the sun and the moon here in Joshua chapter 10. Commentators of all persuasions seem to get very caught up on the strange happening in the sky that day or extra day. Depending on how the Hebrews translated, some suggest that Joshua is asking for more daylight to extend the day to win the battle. Others are saying he's actually praying that the sun stays where it is in the sky so there's less daylight so he can continue his surprise attack just like he did in verse 9 because he attacked at night. Either way, doesn't really matter. He's asking God that wherever the sun and the moon are at that given moment, that they just stay where they are, that nothing moves on. He's praying creatively. He's praying daringly. He's praying boldly. He's praying this great big prayer to a great big God. And Joshua very publicly is laying his belief on the line before all of Israel. In fact, as you read it carefully, Joshua is seeking to command the sun and the moon. I mean, look at it carefully what he says. In verse 12, he isn't speaking as a word of the Lord directly. He kind of says, says to the son. He says, yet yeah, said to the Lord in the present. But then he says, son, stand still. And again, the commentators get themselves all worked up about this. He's speaking to God, but he's commanding the sun. He's commanding the moon through God's power. Why is he confident? Why is he so passionate? Because Joshua takes to heart what we've already read in verse 8, that the Lord is with him that God's promises stand true. Joshua believes God when he says he will act, and Joshua is doing and building everything on the fact that God has made these promises. Joshua, the man who knows the word of God, treasures the promises of God, isn't able to pray great prayers to God, and he receives a wonderful intervention from God. If you want to know how to pray, you read this book. Because whenever we pray this book back to God and say, God, you've promised that you would, he will act. Because this is God's covenant word to his people. If you want to know your God, pray it back to him. Pray his promises back. And then act. You see, Joshua didn't pray. It would be very easy for him to do this. Lord, let the sun stand still and then go home to his tent, put his feet up, and he could watch the one show on repeat for 24 hours because it was going to be 7 p.m. all day. No. Joshua prayed, Lord intervene, but Joshua led the army in the battle. See how the two go hand in hand? You can't say, Lord, will you work in the life of my friend? Will you save my unbelieving friend and then never tell them about Jesus? Whenever you ask, you've got to act. Whenever you say, Lord, will you help me? You've got to get into action and do what you're asking for help for. That's what Joshua does. Then you see in the summary verses of how Joshua won the day. Verses 12 to 14 are just amazing. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua prayed. The two go hand in hand. Prayer from our lips must be backed up by action in our lives. 
Prayer seeks God, but prayer always prompts us. But the third leader we see that day is the Lord himself. And we're nearly finished. He acted decisively. For as you chase your finger through the story, God is powerfully present. Not only does he promise his presence, but his presence makes the difference between victory and failure. Verse 10, for example, we see the Lord, the man of war, entering the fray of his people. The Lord threw the enemies into confusion. Verse 11, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail and were killed by the swords of the Israelites. The Lord threw, the Lord hurled, the Lord defeated these five kings. The Lord is the great warrior king. And I think some of us get a wee bit nervous about that. We forget that our God is a warrior king, mighty in battle, defeating of all his enemies over time and space and eternity. And we do not need to miss this. I can't put it better than Dale Ralph Davis in his wonderful Old Testament commentary, and Joshua. There's going to be quite a long quote on the screen, but it's well worth engaging with. This is what he says. It is too bad much of the church has lost its vision of God or Christ as the warrior who fights for his people. He does not fit into our sentimental, graven images of what God ought to be like. The imagery seems too violent, and we do to the same to the Lord Jesus with perhaps not a little help from church Sunday school materials. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus cannot steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. No mild or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have a hope of triumphing in the muck of life. And I say this really lovingly, friends, in Union Road today. Too many of us of Christians have a hand cream Jesus who's about that big because we've made him that big. We don't see him as great and powerful, and omnipotent. He is huge. He can overturn kings in an instant. He can kill you with a hailstone on the way home today. He can blind you with the sunlight if he so choose. He can end your life right now. He is all-powerful and magnificent, and he goes into battle for his people. But we have reduced him to the wee hand cream Jesus. Oh, the wee, the wee verses on the side of your mug or your, or your car key, you know, on, the, uh, 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 on all the, the key fobs. And we've reduced him to these tiny, nonsense little things. Our God is great, and we have made him this big. You've made him that big. I've made him that big. You've made him tiny to your neighbors because you never talk about him. He's not the best thing in your life. You're more interested in your cars and your education and your academic qualifications and your family. Rather than God, magnificent, high over all, who will judge you one day with what you knew of him. We have made him that when he is that. Friends, get rid of your hand cream, Jesus. This is the Jesus who with sweat and blood and dust and tears and flesh hung on a cross and died for your sin and rose again on the third day from that cold stone slab so that sin and death and hell and sin are crushed forever 
How great is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God? But we've made him that. How weak is my wee God that I'm afraid to speak about or share or pray to. The one who holds the sun and moon and stars in his hands. He can play with them. He can take the sun today and play with it. You farmers out there are dying for some sunlight. Our Lord Jesus plays with the sun. You're reliant on that. That's how great our God is. We're longing that there's going to be no hail and, and wind and, and rain over the next few days. We, we want to preserve from them. He'll bring it if he wants. He's God. But this is the warrior man, Jesus, who squared up the Satan, the Satan that we can't square up, that we feel every day when we square up the Satan. We sin, and we sin, and we sin, and we sin, and we sin. But he squared up to him. And at the cross and in the grave, and on Easter Sunday, he smashed him to pieces. He crushed his head. The warrior man, Jesus, who let his life be taken in nails and crucifixion and in that cold tomb, and he stamps all over Satan's head. That's our God. I don't know what God you have, but that's the God of the Bible. Great God. How can we doubt him? How can we get all anxious and worked up whenever we have a God like that? Folks, tear up your small-minded view of Jesus and fall at his feet and say, My Lord and my God. For here we see that our Lord finally has displayed his divine authority. We read verse 14 that there's never been a day like it. Have a look at verse 14. It's not what you think. There has never been a day like it. And we're going to think there's never been a day like it because the sun was held up for 24 hours. There's never been a day like it because the hail fell like... No, look. There's never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. With the sun and the moon at his disposal, the most incredible thing about this chapter is not that God held up the sun and the moon and through the hill. It's that he listened to a sinful human being. That's the most incredible thing about this story. God listened to a man's prayer. Those five words should be enough to take our breath away and pack Thursday night six times over in here. We should be using the Garden Street Halls and the Youth Suite and a people seated out in the car park. God listened to man's prayer. If he really believed that this place would be full every Thursday night, the stewards would have a nightmare. God listened to man's prayer. Some translations have it more boldly but accurately. The Lord obeyed the voice of man. We need to take a huge gulp and get the import of that. Joshua prays and God intervenes. Two of creation's most permanent features are interrupted in their natural course through the prayer of just one man. Doesn't this prayer rebuke us in our flippancy and our boredom and how we approach God in our prayer? Do we pray? What do we pray? 
E.M. Vines begins his book in prayer like this. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men and women the Spirit can use, people of prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men and women, men and women of prayer. So let's stop and take a breath for a moment. To think that the God who is seated on high stoops down and puts his ear towards us, and he even catches the fumbling words from the lips of dust and ashes, people like us, that yes, even our prayers can impact the God who can turn the sun and the moon and the stars and the hail, and he does it on behalf of his people. He does it because he loves us. And he wants to build his kingdom among us and through us. Psalm 91 verse 15 tells us, When he calls to me, I will answer him. Friends in Union Road, that's the kind of God we have when he calls. He answers. Let's pray.